hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about love. What is it? How do we even know when we're in it? What is the media telling us about it? And what is the difference between love and lust? My interview with Dr. Sari Van Anders and Will Byshell offers a really important dialogue on what that difference is and provides an actually useful theory for us to better stand ourselves. But first, today in sex. It's almost Valentine's Day, which means everybody is talking about love, right? Or maybe we're just buying flowers and chocolates and diamonds to show someone special that we love them. But why are these the hallmarks of love? And what are the words that we're actually using when we do talk about love? Now, I actually took an entire gender studies course during my undergrad called The Love Industry, where we talked exclusively about flowers, chocolates, and diamonds. We talked about how all of these are marketed to folks to celebrate love, and basically how they were built on developing countries so that folks in developed countries can enjoy these commodities. So these grand romantic gestures of a dozen red roses, a heart-shaped box of chocolates, and a mega diamond ring, yeah, they're actually built on large corporations trying to sell us stuff. Duh. And they're pushing a very narrow idea of what love looks like. Now, I'll get more into what the media is telling us about love later in the episode, but what's underneath this immense pressure to shower our loved ones with gifts is that a lot of us don't know how to talk about love. When we do talk about love, we talk about losing our minds or falling head over heels. I want to share a brief clip from Mandy Len Carton's TED Talk about love because she highlights the language that we use when it comes to love. So most of us will probably fall in love a few times over the course of our lives. And in the English language, this metaphor, falling is really the main way that we talk about that experience. And I don't know about you, but when I conceptualize this metaphor, what I picture is straight out of a cartoon. Like there's a man, he's walking down the sidewalk. Without realizing it, he crosses over an open manhole and he just plummets into the sewer below. And I picture it this way because falling is not jumping. Falling is accidental, it's uncontrollable, it's something that happens to us without our consent. And this, this is the main way we talk about starting a new relationship. So I am a writer and I'm also an English teacher, which means I think about words for a living. And you could say that I get paid to argue that the language we use matters, and I would like to argue that many of the metaphors we use to talk about love, maybe even most of them, are a problem. So in love, we fall. We're struck. We are crushed. We swoon. We burn with passion. Love makes us crazy, and it makes us sick. Our hearts ache, and then they break. So our metaphors equate the experience of loving someone to extreme violence or illness. <laughs> they do. And they position us as the victims of unforeseen and totally unavoidable circumstances. So my favorite one of these is smitten, which is the past participle of the word smite. And if you look this word up in the dictionary, you will see that it can be defined as both grievous affliction and to be very much in love. <laughs> so I tend to associate the word smite with a very particular context, which is the Old Testament. And in the book of Exodus alone, there are 16 references to smiting, which is the word that the Bible uses for the vengeance of an angry God. <laughs> so here we are using the same word to talk about love that we use to explain a plague of locusts. Right? So how did this happen? How have we come to associate love with great pain and suffering? And why do we talk about this ostensibly good experience as if we are victims? So these are difficult questions, but I have some theories. And to think this through, I want to focus on one metaphor in particular, which is the idea of love is madness. So when I first started researching romantic love, I found these madness metaphors everywhere. The history of Western culture 
is full of language that equates love to mental illness. And these are just a few examples. So William Shakespeare, love is merely a madness from as you like it. Frederick Nietzsche, there's always some madness in love. Got me looking, got me looking so crazy in love. <laughs> from the great philosopher Beyonce Knowles. <laughs> And yes, I am so glad she mentions Beyonce as an important philosopher on love. But Mandy brings up such a good point, and that we equate love with violence, with something that happens against our will, that it smites us and we are victims to its plan. And if we think of love as something that happens to us, then what kind of agency do we have in negotiating what that love looks and feels like? And while a 45-minute podcast can in no way answer what love is, I'm hoping to offer some tools for us to think about the love that we want to cultivate in our lives and share a little bit of my own love story on the way. So let's get into those calls. I'm actually in the process of answering questions about love for a campaign that Good Clean Love is doing called We Love the Way You Love. And as I was thinking about my responses, I got this voice memo from a listener. Hi, Dr. Tidy. So I feel like love in media is so romanticized and portrayed in an unrealistic fashion. And my question is, how can we recognize, understand, and approach love in our own lives um, in terms of the platonic sense, the romantic sense, the familial sense, um, self-love, and in any other senses of the word? Thank you. Caller, first thing is that you are so spot on on naming all of these different types of love. And what the media is showing us is such a narrow idea of romantic love. That's the one that we see most often. Shameful moment here. I have been binge watching Bridgerton lately, which again, some great sex scenes, but very problematic in how it talks about love. And the thing about Bridgerton and so many of the different rom-coms and drama series is that they always start with the people who are supposed to fall in love being pitted against each other. They disagree, they don't like each other, and then circumstance throws them together. They happen to agree on maybe one thing or the passion of disagreeing leads them to falling in love. And normally this happens within a day to about two weeks. And Understandably, that can confuse us on what love is supposed to be like and what the beginnings of relationships should look like. I highly recommend listening to the rest of Mandy Lencarton's TED Talk because she talks about her first relationship and how our ideas about love are so based on what we see in the media and how it informs our scripts of how we're supposed to behave in our lives. The thing that really gets me is that in all of these scenes that we see about love, there's barely any communication that happens. Folks are head over heels for each other, or they are meant to be, but they don't actually make an active choice to be together every day. And for me, I feel like that's what love is all about. And that's not just romantic relationships. This is also partnerships and friendships and with our family and with ourselves. It's showing up every day to say, I choose this. I choose to love you, to love myself, to love our family, because love is hard. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to explain other than the fact that love is, as cheesy as it sounds, what keeps us together because there are a lot of other times where we don't like the people that we love. But knowing that love can be more expansive than that, that love can foster disagreement. It can foster people having short-term relationships and still being loving, successful relationships. What's really great is what Dan Savage says in the Savage Lovecast. And you've heard me talk about Dan before because he's one of my idols, let's be honest. But he talks about the successful short-term relationship and how often in media, what we're taught in love is that you find this one person who fulfills all of your needs and then you spend the rest of your lives together. And for a lot of folks, that's not really how it works. Relationships go one of two ways. You either break up or you don't. And most of the time, as sad as it sounds, people break up. That's what happens. And building into that notion that your love is unsuccessful if it hasn't been 50 years of marriage and a white picket fence, a couple of dogs and some kids, well, what is that telling us about whose love we are valuing in the world and who we look up to and strive to emulate in our own lives? So instead of trying to recreate these media romances in our own lives, 
maybe we should just have a conversation about what love means to us and be open to how that's going to evolve over time. Now, caller, I'm hoping that in the next little bit, I'm going to share some of my own experiences of love, and maybe that will start you on your path of thinking about, oh yeah, that resonates for me, or oh, that's not at all how I would define love. Because really, it's your own journey. You get to figure out what that looks like and what it means and what it feels like. So the first question from Good Clean Love is asking, when was the first moment you knew it was love? I have to admit that I'm a romantic to my core, and it was love at first sight. At least, it was for me. I was at a bar, like all good love stories begin, and I was there for a friend's birthday and was actually kind of seeing someone else who was at the party with me. I had actually traveled to that city to see this other person and see like, oh, maybe we're going to hook up. Let's see what happens. Anyway, I'd hooked up with this person the night before, but when we got to the party, they totally gave me the cold shoulder and like ignored me for the whole evening. So being a self-respecting 22-year-old, I had a couple beers, turned my back on them, and was determined to have a good time. Then in walked a tall, very good-looking guy who sat down directly across from me. Our mutual friend, whose birthday it was, was shocked that we had never met and promptly introduced us. We spent the rest of the evening chatting. By the end of it, I was very cool and asked if I could add him on Facebook. So after this evening, I told all my friends that this guy was a game changer. Those are my precise words because I thought it sounded so cool. (laughs) And I was convinced that it was love at first sight. And it sounds kind of bananas because I literally knew nothing about this person, but I did know immediately that something was going to happen between us and it was going to be big. Now, normally I tell people that it takes time to get to know someone, to fully recognize the emergent feelings of love, and that you need to go through some shit together to really know if it is love. But I also recognize that our bodies are smart and we need to listen to them. Not to disregard any red flags or go full-blown into something that might not be good for us, but to listen to our gut, to that small voice within us that says, yes. And that night... That voice immediately said yes. And now, seven years later, I still wake up every morning with that little yes, because what can I say? I was right. The second question Good Clean Love is asking me is, when was the first time the feeling of love was so strong you had to tell someone about it? Now, I've been feeling really strong feelings of love my entire life. My mom actually said to me at a very young age that my intensity in loving people will be one of my greatest gifts and would also cause me a lot of pain. And she was right, as most mothers are. And this is about more than just romantic love. It was a love that I had for so many people that literally like made my heart feel like it was going to burst out of my chest, starting from my earliest memories. I actually used to sit on my mom's lap and like hold her face in my hands and be like, oh, mommy, I love you so much. My poor mother is so patient, but I just felt such an overwhelming sense of love for her and I just needed her to know that. But since I told you about my love at first sight story, which was with Levi, just so you know, I thought I'd tell you how we said I love you to each other for the first time. Now, after adding each other on Facebook and messaging each other constantly for two weeks, I went to visit him in the city where he was living. And what was supposed to be one dinner date turned into spending the entire weekend at his apartment. Uh, On the last night I was there, Levi and I were cuddling in bed, and he turned to me and said, I love you. And he was so damn practical about it. He literally said, I care about you as a person. I feel like I already know who you are. So of course I love you. Why is it weird that I'm saying this? Of course, I love you. And I was gobsmacked and may have said something along the lines of, thank you? But I thought about it for the next two weeks when we were apart and we were living our lives in different cities. And as soon as we were together again, I told him that I loved him. We'd only known each other for a month, and yet I had that feeling like I needed to tell him. And unfortunately for everyone else, um, I also told every single person who would listen to me and give me the time of day. But the love that I'm reveling in right now is very different than those first smitten days back in 2014. Levi and I have traveled together, we've done long distance, we've lived with our parents for many months up until right now when I am recording this, and we're about to sign a mortgage together. And that love is far less glamorous. 
It's made up of him uh, bringing me any packages we receive in the mail because he knows how much I love opening them. It's rolling over in bed and having the first thing we say to each other every morning, what do you want for breakfast? And it's this daily love that in my very biased opinion makes our lives so much richer. Then the last question from Good Clean Love is, many people report it is easier to give love than receive it. How have you taught yourself to receive love? I actually don't think I can answer this question without first recognizing that as a woman in a patriarchal society, we have been taught to endlessly give love and support. That it is expected of good and proper women. But there isn't the same expectation about receiving love. Of course, this is an experience that many people can face regardless of gender, but it's particularly part of how we raise girls to be aware of how other people are feeling, of making people feel comfortable, of being accommodating. And so all of our energy is poured into other people without holding any in reserve for ourselves. Now, I have spent a lot of my 20s unlearning and unpacking this default of giving, giving, and giving, and I am far from getting outside of it. I think receiving love has to start with our own sense of self-worth and knowing that we can take up space and make noise. I also recognize that as a white settler woman, my voice has been amplified over BIPOC women's voices. And so this balance is one that must be constantly thought about. How do I work to be anti-racist, to be anti-colonial? And a part of that is, is holding space as an ally. It also means making my voice heard in spaces where there are only white male voices being heard. Because loving yourself and receiving love, this is an act of social justice, and it should be a right for every single person. Back to the heart of the question, how have I taught myself to receive love? It sounds silly, but every day I stand in a power position with my arms raised above my head and tell myself that I am enough and that I am worthy of love. I'm essentially tricking my body into releasing endorphins so I can feel happier and more positive after I do it. And so as I move through the rest of my day, I remind myself of this and I find that when people express their love or appreciation for me, I can take it in and not try to deflect it in some way. And every day I'm getting just a little bit better at it. So thank you for hearing my little tirade about love and going down memory lane with me. But why you're all actually here. Y'all know that I'm a huge nerd, and that's part of why you're listening, right? Because I read about a lot of the research and a lot of the theories about sexuality, and I try to make sense of it all so that I can offer some helpful advice to you. Well, you will not be disappointed this week because, team, I have found a theory that is actually useful and that can help us understand ourselves better. I am so delighted to share my interview with Dr. Sari Van Anders, who actually created this theory, and Will Byshell. If you wanted to know the difference between love and lust, or eroticism and nurturance, well, here it is. So thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me. I really appreciate your time. And we want to just start by maybe introducing yourselves, and then we'll kind of dive into the work that you do and why I'm really excited to share it with listeners. Okay, sure. I'll start. I'm Siri Van Anders, and I'm a professor of psychology, gender studies, and neuroscience at Queen's University. And I'm also the Canada 150 Research Chair in Social Neuroendocrinology, Sexuality, and Gender Sex. Wow. <laughs> it's a lot, I know. Uh, <laughs> my name is Will Beichel. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan in psychology, specifically personality and social contexts. And I'm working with Sari um, as my primary advisor. And I study generally gender and sexual diversity. Mm -hmm. I, and so I, I actually, I met the two of you at the uh, Canadian Sex Research Forum conference. And I was just really struck by the work that you do, but then also your commitment to knowledge translation and making sure that folks actually engage with the work that we're doing. And I find that so often in academia, that, that doesn't really happen. Like knowledge translation is something we just kind of tag on at the end of our work. We're like, oh yeah, what are we going to do with it? And how is it actually going to have an impact? So I just really appreciated that part of the work that you do. So before we get into those resources, which I'm really excited to share with folks as well, what is the sexual configurations theory and why is that important to 
why you created it and why are you um, doing research about it now and sharing these resources? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll answer and will you jump in if I'm jumbling or there's parts that you think would uh, be important to add. So sexual configurations theory is something I developed because there's a lot of theories of gender, sex, and sexuality, but they tend to have a lot of gaps in them. And those gaps, as we've argued in the paper about the theory, are actually real people and lived experiences. And if our theories can't have space for what we know empirically exists, then our theories are pretty incomplete. So I was interested in developing a theory and a model that allowed us to think about partnered sexuality more broadly. So including how we typically think of sexual orientation, like the genders of the people you're interested in relative to your own gender. So we call that gender sex sexuality in SCT, sexual configurations theory, but also what we call partner number sexuality. So the numbers of people you're interested in. So there's all sorts of sexualities like asexuality, polyamory, and many more that people increasingly understand as primary or important for their identities and their sexual orientations. And then there's so many other aspects too. Demisexuality tells us that these sort of nurturing or romantic or erotic or connections don't always have this uh, occur in the same way. And some of Lisa Diamond's work, who's another scholar working in similar fields, um, has shown this for some time. So SCT gives room for that eroticism and nurturance to be sometimes overlapping and sometimes separate. And SCT also talks about, I'm trying to think how much more depth to go into it, but basically it makes room for people to locate themselves in these really rich models that make room for all sorts of gender, sex, and sexual complexity for their gender, sex, sexuality, their partner number, sexuality, and then also their individual gender, sex in ways that sort of decenter norms and mainstream, but keep room for majorities as well. Mm -hmm. Will, is there anything you want to, you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I'll just add, because it's very central to my work, is that these models are these 3D diagrams that are very complex and really cool and interesting. I call them, they kind of look like tornadoes. Yes, they do. (laughs) And uh, there are lots of different aspects to the diagrams that kind of tap into what Siri has been talking about, all these different ways of being um, sexually and and also your, your own gender. So... Yeah, and so we can maybe talk a little bit more in depth about the diagrams later, but that's like a really cool and central part to it. And just briefly, I think that, so first of all, Will is so much better at selling SCT than I am. (laughs) (laughs) But the main point I want to make is that they are really, the diagrams are really complex. And so we often get a little bit of pushback from other researchers, like how could people actually use these or how could we use them? And so in a way, it's like the knowledge translation is partially for the public because we're interested in anyone being able to use them, but also from the sort of skepticism from some people that anyone could use them. And so we've been working really hard throughout, you know, for the past five years, trying to think about how do we make these usable for people, whether within a research context or for anyone. One more brief thing is that some of my friends, when the paper first came out, who were not in academia or not even in or in academia, but on our fields, read the papers and found them useful for understanding themselves. And that made me realize oh, this is like really needs to be accessible to all sorts of people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's what I love about and why I wanted to create this podcast, because as an academic, you just don't see those conversations happening. And so even though the diagrams are complex, I think you need a complex theory and complex diagrams to get at the complexity of our human experience, right? Of gender, sex, sexuality, of, of so many of those different things. And I think that thinking deeply about who we are in the world and how we engage with people romantically, sexually, is something we don't spend enough time really sitting in and thinking about for ourselves, for our partners. And so it it makes sense to me that when you first look at it, you're like, okay, this this looks a bit complex, but you go through the video or you go through the zine. I was rereading through the zine this morning. I love it, especially page nine, where you basically get into why, why did I even create this? And it talks about, yeah, as you said, decentering all of those norms that we have and actually how if you're working from the margins, it's actually the margins are, are quite crowded. There's a lot of people in there who don't see themselves reflected in mainstream society. So I think that's what's so valuable about it and the resources that that you've created for folks to actually locate themselves in a multitude of ways. So 
talk to me a bit about that process of figuring out how you were going to share it with people and the multitude of different resources that you've created. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. So the paper came out in 2015, the original theory paper, and it seemed incredibly clear to me. But as I mentioned, the images are complex. And I started hearing from people who, you know, are pretty sophisticated that it was taking, you know, it took them a bunch of hours to read with like a lot of commitment and a lot of underlining and rereading. So we started to think about ways to make it more accessible and also for people to actually use the images, including us in our own research. And so to do that, there was a few steps. One is we created a workbook, which is also on my website, that people can use to sort of work through the images. It's nothing fancy. We just used it in our own research. It's not like a clinical workbook or anything. We're not clinicians. And we use that in our research to see if that would work. And that helped to explain and simplify, but not oversimplify, SET for just any participants in our study to use. So that was one step. But that was a long study that involved um, a researcher sitting down with people, explaining it, going through it with them in what we call qualitative research and was was time intensive. So could we move things any quicker and could we do things online, which, you know, with COVID now feels very timely to have been thinking about that. And so Will's work has really focused on, in part, how do we do uh, these SCT models online with people and then how do we explain it? given that we're not going to be sitting with them. And Will worked really hard um, with some lab folks to develop these videos, which I'll let Will discuss in a moment. And then the third thing we've developed is the zine, as you mentioned. And I spoke with some colleagues who had been involved in developing zines, public communication of complex gender, sex, and sexuality concepts. So Meg John Barker and Alexanne Taffy and who are also therapists. So they're able, and clinicians, they're able to communicate things really well for people. And they brought on graphic artist, Jewel Scheel, who is really, really talented. And we worked together over a while. The fourth thing is we've been working with some colleagues in Puerto Rico and Washington, DC, who have translated the zine into Spanish. So that we're about to release that. And my next hope is to translate it into French. And we're working, about to start working with some folks in the lab and elsewhere to do that. And it's sort of like, how do we, the the motivation behind all this is just, how do we get it out there in as many different ways as might be useful for people? And I wish we could have done more by this point. I had my second child in 2015. Um, We've moved since then, had all sorts of family health issues. So, um, and COVID. So we've done a lot, but there's so much more I want to do. So it feels like a really partial list. So it gives me, it makes me feel a bit better to hear. It sounds like a lot. No, it definitely is like from from even like being in this podcast and talking to folks about the work that they do, like you really have gone above and beyond and helping people access things in a variety of ways that, that work for them. Say what type of learner that you are like right now, I'm in the process of doing my um, sexual health educator training. And so we're talking about how do you create content, especially online now, and how are you teaching to actually engage with people so you have for oral or like visual or kinesthetic learners, all of these different learners to do different things. And so what I liked about it and about zine videos, all of these different things is that even if some things are lost, if someone's watching a video, okay, maybe I can go through the zine and some of those things will come through for me. And I find that really valuable. I don't know, Will, can you talk a bit more about that process and your own work on that knowledge translation journey? It started my first year of grad school, and I was really interested in working with SET. It's one of the reasons I came to Michigan to work with Sari. And I got really interested in that the study, the qualitative interview study was already sort of done or mostly done. But I was really interested in, oh, what if you could get not 25 people, but hundreds of people to fill out these diagrams and then make composites and see where people located themselves. You could do all sorts of maybe even quantitative analyses with the diagrams. So that necessitated this video. So we sort of landed on this cartoon instructional video to explain the diagrams, mostly through example. That's sort of how we came to find out that's the easiest way for people to really understand how to use the diagrams for themselves. So it was a very long process because I, you know, I had never created an instructional cartoon video before. So we created the storyboard and all the things that the characters would say. And then I had people in the lab record these characters saying those things. And it was a lot of very iterative process, a lot of drafts. We got to about, it's like an 11 or 12 minute video that we felt 
described all the parts of the diagrams, gave diverse examples of the ways that people could use them. This was specifically for the individual gender sex diagrams. So we had trans people, non-binary people, we had cisgender people all describing their genders using these diagrams in this video. And it was a cartoon, so my hope was that people could then project themselves a bit more onto these characters rather than being like full people in person, which might seem like, oh, well, I'm not exactly that kind of person, so it's not really for me. And then we attached it out and it seemed like it was good enough for most people to fill out the diagrams. So people watched those videos, then filled out the diagrams themselves all online. It was about 250 people. And then we coded the diagrams to see, did they actually understand them in the ways that we wanted them to or fill them out in ways that made sense? And over 80% of them did. So that was pretty encouraging to us that the videos were working. And then, of course, there's the gender, sex, sexuality and partner number sexuality components that we hadn't made videos for. So sort of over the next few years, I worked on those with a lot of help from the lab. Uh, It was really kind of a lab-wide project, very collaborative. And we made videos for those other two components. And then the presentation that you saw at the conference was about evaluating those three videos to sort of get a sense of, okay, we think that they are working, but we also want to know people's perceptions of them. And and also for professionals like researchers, clinicians, and educators, might they see value in, in these videos? And can they use them in their work and have them evaluate the videos? And it turned out pretty well. People seem to to rate them fairly positively. There were positive and negative comments as well. Like any <laughs> anything that we do, people are gonna have issues with. So, um, but it gave us valuable feedback. And yeah, I think really kind of solidified this idea of these videos as a pretty, you know, they're 10 to 12 minutes long, but it's much faster than say, sitting down with an interviewer for two hours and, and going through the diagrams. Mm-hmm. Or like reading through a paper and trying to, well, accessing the paper and then reading the paper and everything else. There's kind of two things that I want to pick up on there. And so as an arts-based researcher myself, that's, I think, what I really valued about the fact of doing those videos. If you're using a multitude of different art forms to to share the work that you're doing. And I like, too, specifically the use of the cartoons. And like you said, that, that people can project themselves onto them and not specific actors and things like that. So I just... For me, that has always been very apparent that performance and theater and different things like that, it has a place in knowledge mobilization because we can actually see ourselves reflected in it if we're kind of using those characters and examples and and things like that. There's one other thing that I I really want to dig into because I think for a sex researcher, this is something that we're interested in, but I don't think the general public thinks about very often. And this is the eroticism and nurturance and you kind of have label it too if if you uh, about lust and love and how those things they aren't always together in in our relationships they can be separate things and i think for a lot of people that can just like that can be mind blowing they're like wait 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 it's not just like one partner who fulfills all of these needs for me perfectly and i'm like mm, no this isn't disney it's it's can be much more complex and and much more fulfilling than that as well so maybe i'll put that out to both of you kind of why was that really important to have in the theory and what do you see as as the benefit of thinking about those things as separate but they could also be overlapping parts of our relationships i think one of the important things about nurturance and eroticism is that people exist with nurturant connections to people and people exist with erotic connections to people and people exist with both. And so part of it is like, that's what people are and have. And so our theories need to reflect or capture whatever word you want to use reality. And if they don't, they're pretty limited. So if people are telling us, for example, they need to have a sort of nurturant or caring connection with someone before they can have erotic feelings for them, well, then our, our theories about sexuality need to incorporate that. If people can feel attractions to someone after developing a close friendship, we need to have that. And we know there's lots of people who have erotic connections or sexual, what, what people think of as sexual, but we call erotic to sort of separate that out to people, but without caring, nurturant connections, both in negative ways, you know, with sexual coercion and assault, but also within, you know, positive ways, just, you know, like one night stands, which can of course be nurturant as well and caring, but often are really just about the erotic or genital or bodily pleasure part of it. 
so for us, it's like there's all these sexual identities and sexual orientations that clearly show sometimes overlap between these and sometimes not. And our theories needed to capture that. And this was made brought home to me with a friend who talked about how having partner number sexuality and nurturance eroticism laid out, like you could say, you know, I want to be erotically connected to this many people, but nurturantly only to one. Or I want to be nurturantly connected to many people, but erotically with none or so on. And so this friend had explained to me how this helped them explain themselves to themselves and also themselves to some friends and partners and people who cared about them who couldn't really understand. So I think making space for people really matters. And that nurturance eroticism separation, I think, is a key one that understanding can help people like I said, understand themselves and understand partners and others in um, more detail. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that distinction also really highlights how SET is built from the margins because to me, and and sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, asexuality, I think, was a really important part of of thinking through uh, SET and its components and how in the asexual community, um, there already are ways of talking about these this separation. So, right. for example, aromantic versus asexual people. Often, you know, if you're aromantic, you might experience eroticism and not nurturance and asexual, vice versa. And then, of course, varying levels with different people. It also speaks to how our society's norms can make these things jumbled and how theories like this and also working with communities can help us disentangle them. So I think that there is a social norm in our society that eroticism and nurturance go together or should go together. Or like you were saying that your partner should fulfill both of those needs. And if you're fulfilling them in other ways, it's sort of less than, right? But I think what's really cool about, about teasing them apart and, and not saying that there is any particular configuration that is the norm or um, that is the right one can also help sort of destigmatize things like asexual or aromantic identities. So it's a really cool sort of feedback loop that I really love of working from communities, uh, especially marginalized communities can inform our theories. And then our theories can even help destigmatize and educate about those same identities. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's very apparent when you're going through it that there there's that, uh, I'm not sure if what you call it, but like a very like, feminist and equitable underpinning to it of being like, how do we make sure that a multitude of perspectives are included in this? And I particularly like too, in the the gender, sex, sexuality one, um, and you call it gender, sex, like challenge area. And I really, I quite like that specific choice of the word challenge. I don't know if you can get into that a bit more. Those, I think these are the two areas that folks will, will definitely like need to think about more. And I think that that'll be their way into being like, oh, you know, I hadn't really thought about that before. And maybe we'll get them into digging into this work a bit, a bit further. Yeah. When I was coming up with the theory, I was thinking people's sexual identities are names they call themselves or that sounds bad. Names they call themselves. People's <laughs> sexual identities are sort of labels or categories or groups they belong to that have to do with culture and community and so on. And it was really important to me that SCT was not actually about sexual identities because those are are words and things that people use and create and adopt for themselves. So what we model and, and theorize about in SCT is about what we call sexual status or behavior. So what people are doing and then also orientation. So whether what people are interested in and aroused by and excited by and enjoy and all of those can be branched, meaning not the same, or coincident, meaning overlapping. And so it was really important for me not to have the word queer in the theory. And one of the reasons for that was the theory is built with queer and feminist insights and insights from the sexual margins, trans, non-binary, asexuality, polyamory, gender, sex minority, and sexual minority folks, for sure, and minoritized. But Queer is an identity term. It can also describe orientations, but some people might have identities that they don't call queer. And then what would it mean to locate yourself in a queer area when that's an identity term you don't use? So it's really important for me not to use terms from people's identities in the theory so that people could identify 
or self-locate in ways that weren't contrary to, you know, everything they knew about themselves or everything that all the ways they made sense of themselves. So the challenge area in SCT is um, areas that challenge norms for gender, sex, or sexuality in some way. So for example, someone might identify themselves as someone whose gender challenges norms in some way. Someone might say they're really attracted to people whose gender challenges norms in some way. They might be attracted to men whose gender challenges norms. They might be attracted to women whose gender challenges norms, or they might be attracted to people whose gender challenges the binary in other ways or um, gets away from women and men entirely. And we were felt like it was really important for people to have that area to locate because for so many people, that's a really key aspect of themselves and their sexualities. And just saying, oh, I'm attracted to women or men, or I'm attracted to femininity or masculinity or what, like, that's not enough. We know that's not enough to capture or there's not enough space in that for people's actual experiences. Mm -hmm. Will, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Honestly, I think that was great. I don't know what I... (laughs) (laughs) You crushed it. (laughs) Um, I guess other than my own personal experience reading SCT, and I agree that was one of the pieces that really grabbed me and has been really important in my own sort of journey and understanding my own gender and sexuality. And so just knowing that, I think, also sort of gives me motivation to get this theory out there because I know that has been important for me and, and, you know, my participants and, and a lot of other people. So I think that that's an area that is, is challenging, you know, funnily enough for a lot of people to understand quite what it is, but also if you already exist in ways that challenge norms or you are attracted to people who challenge norms, I think it, it would actually make sense pretty immediately. So we often say, in our papers, there might be parts of the diagrams that you don't understand or that aren't relevant to you, but are relevant to other people. And so you might not feel like you fully understand every single location on these diagrams, but that's okay, because maybe those parts just aren't for you. Mm -hmm. I love that inclusivity of that, of just being like, you don't feel like you need to fill out or shade every single area, because maybe that isn't a part that's really important to you, or maybe it's emergent and later on down the line, that'll become something that's important to you. Yeah. And I mean, because sometimes we do get some resistance or pushback from people with binary genders or more traditional sexual orientations. Like, what do we need all this for? And it's like, you don't, you just put yourself right there where you are (laughs) and the rest will be for other people. But of course, one of the neat things we've done, we've found with this knowledge translation and even our qualitative research is that some people, even gender and sexual minorities themselves, and sometimes gender and sexual majorities will say to us, oh, like, wow, I really now understand these other aspects like that I didn't before and somehow seeing this all together helps me understand. And, you know, for some people, it's really a little bit dislocating or disorienting to see that your, you know, majoritized social location, meaning, you know, like a high power, very common sexuality is only one small spot on this huge diagram. And for other people, it's really like sort of almost a pro-diversity initiative. They kind of get to see what's going on And it helps them make sense of diversity in a way they weren't able to before. And one of the things I like about the challenge area is that we can, people can locate the same sexualities in a challenge or a non-challenge area. So someone might say, you know what, I'm a trans man and that challenges gender norms for men. So I'm going to put myself in this challenge area near men. And some trans men might say, I'm a trans man and I'm a man. And that's, that's where that goes. It has, doesn't challenge gender norms. I'm a man. And there's no, there's none of that, like, it must be all or one. So the same or similar orientations or existences can be located where it's meaningful for individuals. And as well, people can, can identify perceptions of themselves. So I locate myself here, but I know other people locate myself, locate me here. Because we hear people talk about, for example, being perceived as a gender they aspire to be, being perceived as a gender they're not being mispronounced, being treated in ways that don't accord with the gender they are. And people can kind of map all that out using the challenge area or not. And we find that people do that. And it seems to be really meaningful for lots of people. 
Mm-hmm. And meaningful too for the participants who are using it and anyone who decides to use it. And I like that piece you said there, Will, about it's been meaningful as a researcher for yourself. And I think there's this perception, I've talked about it before on the podcast, where it's like, oh, because you're a sex researcher, well, you must have amazing sex, you're so confident, like all of these things go with it. You're like, uh, it's like a lifelong process and journey. So it, it was really helpful for, for me to go through them and to think about those things in, in more depth. And, you know, I think especially as a cisgender woman, like being able to look at it and to look at that gender sex challenge area and be like, yeah, like there is there is such a breadth of diversity here, but to actually have a model where you can locate yourself in a multitude of ways just would just feel so affirming. Like it felt affirming for like me, but I, I can imagine affirming for a multitude of people to be like, oh yeah, like I'm actually reflected in this. And this is something that doesn't happen enough, as you said, in the theories that are presented. And I'm actually thinking I'm, I'm preparing to teach a healthy sexuality course at UVic next semester. And our one of our first classes is theories of sexuality. And my like textbook that I'm working off of, I'm like, oh, are these the theories that I have to share? So I would love to actually share this and be like, you know, here's something else that's maybe a bit better. Like, wh- what do we think is missing in these other theories that maybe is actually being addressed here in SCT? So I'm really looking forward to to sharing that with students because it's a second year level course with no prerequisites. So there's a so much diversity in that class that I really think it's it's going to blow some minds, I think. We, we, we'll probably have to go over it a few times. I'm like, don't worry. We have videos. We have zines. You will be, you'll be fine. You'll, you'll get there. <laughs> so yeah, we're finding that a lot of people are wanting to use the videos in their classrooms. So that's this other way that we're doing knowledge translation, giving people tools to teach it. Because a lot of people have told me they've been teaching SCT anyway. They often use the zine because it's much more accessible than the original paper. And the videos, I think, will help with that. One other thing I was thinking that I just wanted to get across that might be useful, it might be more useful than the description I gave earlier on, is that I think one of the things that SCT does, including for people who are gender sex majorities or sexual majorities or um, in really any sort of sexual or gender location, is helps us think about what we mean by those categories. So, for example, when people say, oh, I'm attracted to women, we can ask, well, like, what does that mean? Are we attracted to people who identify as women, people who move through the world as women, people who have genitals that we, as a culture, tie to women, people who are feminine? And, you know, some of us might have, we all might have different answers to that. People typically kind of assume it has to do with, like, appearance, but also genitals and bodies. But we know there's so much more to attraction and arousal and to experiences of sexuality and gender. And SCT allows us to think about and map ourselves out in much richer and nuanced ways. But also for people who have a pretty coincident orientation that seems more traditional, there's also room for them. So it's not like it's, you know, only for one group and not another. And we've had a lot of people who have said to us, kind of as you said earlier, wow, like I can actually see myself in this, including sex researchers. Like for the first time I see myself in a a sexuality or a gender theory, which was is pretty poignant. We've had at talks and people have commented over Twitter or online that they like started crying when they realized, you know, I had one, uh, someone who was really excited to see we were talking about sex workers and how sex workers could map out, you know, sex for pay versus sex for not if they wanted to, which of course no one has to, or seeing partner number sexuality treated with importance that people like are not just like, wow, it's nice to be included, but like, I think it's hard for people who have always been included to realize how fundamentally isolating and alienating science and research is and can be for people on the margins. And therefore, how like momentous it is to see yourself in scholarship when, you know, you've never seen yourself in it before. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly powerful. And I think there's this assumption that research that comes out from universities, you know, in in the ivory tower, that it comes out and, oh, well, it it must be true. And there's no kind of critical engagement with that. And I think it's also the way that that we have stratified and, and separated folks in society, that only certain people have access to knowledge. And so I I think that is immensely powerful. And it's so good to hear that folks have what an an emotional response to seeing that of being like, wow, we're actually having research and theories that match the world that we live in now. And and it's matching not just this, you know, tiny space of predominantly like 
cisgendered white men and, and their perspective on the world. But actually, it's it's expanding that and saying, oh, wow, like there's there's so much diversity out there. And how do we actually how do we honor that in the world and the research that we do, but also in our lived realities? You know, I think often in life, what is like our biggest strengths are also our weaknesses. And uh, we can think about SAT in the same way. People think that SAT is too complicated. Like that was, I think, maybe the first reactions people had to it. These diagrams. Some people, some people's first reactions were like, this is amazing. And some people's first reactions were like, isn't this a little complicated or this is too complicated? Just want to, just want to broader step back, bigger perspective. Thank you. Um, Yes, for sure. But a point that we've made in our papers is that actually its complexity is also a big strength, not just in that, oh, we can represent a broader range of people and marginalized people, which is obviously incredibly important, but that the complexity makes you sit down and think about these things in a deeper way. There is no easy checkbox. There's not a checkbox that says man. There's not a checkbox that says gay, right? You have to do cognitive work to locate yourself on the diagrams amongst almost an infinite number of possibilities of what you can do. And that throws people off. Sometimes they're like, oh my gosh, you know, where's my easy checkbox? But because they're sort of the only option is to just think about this entire field. You have to do that work of what, what am I attracted to? You know, what, what kinds of genders do I like to enact? I, I only have one partner, but is that the only way I'd be happy? Like it kind of really encourages all of those questions. Um, And I think the zine also really gets at asking yourself all of these questions that the diagrams raise. I think that's like one of the, I could go on about the zine. It's incredible. And I think that's one of its big strengths is that sort of presents a lot of those questions that I think the, the diagrams really encourage people to, to consider for themselves. And then as we've been saying for other people too. Mm -hmm. I think it probably speaks a lot to, it speaks a lot to privilege. If you're used to filling out a form or whatever and you just check, you don't have to think about it. You're like, oh, woman, easy. You go to the doctor's office, you fill out your forms, easy. And I think that it speaks to the fact that if you've never had to think about these things, then then it should be challenging to start going through SCT and thinking about who you are in the world, but also the space that you take up, right? So I just, I, I think it's really important, especially in the world that we're living in today and our raised awareness about, you know, who we are in the world, how we move through the world and what privileges do each of us have in a multitude of ways. So I just, I think it's a really important thing to, to say that it is a resource for all folks. But if you haven't taken the time to think about these things deeply, then, then this is, this is an offer for, for you to take that time to think more deeply because probably you will be happier if you have a better understanding of who you are. And then if you have a better understanding of that, you're probably going to have better relationships because you're actually going to have those needs and desires and whatever else you want. Those are going to be more easily met if you can be more clear about what that actually looks like for you. That's a great point. And I really appreciate it. I think one of the interesting things is, and as Will has pointed out, not everyone is like, wow, SCT is my favorite thing to do, or I learned a lot. But we do find, you know, a lot of sexual and gender sex majority folks will say, wow, I thought like I was pretty, you know, straight and narrow, or I thought I was just pretty simple. And then when I started doing SCT, I realized like there's a lot more complexity. So than I thought, and I think you make, I love the way you put it, that it's sort of an offer. We definitely found in our research that the majority folks just have less reason, obviously, because they're experiencing less stigma. So there's less reason to try to make sense of yourself in that situation. But that doesn't mean yourself doesn't need make sense made of, doesn't sense making need of, whatever the right way to say that is. Yeah, it doesn't mean that majorities don't have complexity within their sexualities and genders. And we're not the only researchers to find that, but I think SCT does a good job of helping people realize how much more complex gender, sex, and sexuality are for all of us. Mm-hmm. I think you sum that up really beautifully about that that depth of complexity that I think each of us has. But like you said, if if 
you haven't felt stigmatized, maybe you haven't actually sat down and, and thought about that and done that, that deep work. So I'm really going to encourage folks who are listening to go look at the zine, watch the videos, and actually give yourself that time to work through it and think through it. As someone who has now done it myself in preparation for talking to the two of you, I and I know that I'm going to go back and and work through it because it can be so easy to label ourselves with whatever that is, but actually there's so much richness within that. So I'm just, I'm, this is my kind of final invite and offer to the two of you. If you want folks to walk away, listeners, with kind of one main tidbit, what, what would that be if they're going to move forward and their, their lives are going to be better because of SCT? What, what is that little bit of information you want them to go away with? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I'm the worst at these sorts of things. Will, do you want to go first? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here would be my one, my really quick, really quick tidbit. And then I do want to say one other thing later, but I think I would say gender, sex, and sexual diversity exists and matters, and our science and scholarship needs to be built with understandings of that, to reflect it, and to be meaningful to people whether they're sexual and gender sex minorities or majorities for what we're doing to be meaningful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Will, how about you? Yeah. Um, so complimenting what Saria was saying, I think also at an individual level, I think there's just so much to be gained and there's so much value in not boxing yourself in and having a whole landscape of possibilities for your gender and your sexuality that could be a really fantastic moment of discovery and continual moments of discovery that, you know, why, why deny yourself of those discoveries? I mean, I think SET is one tool that, that can really help with that. And it's one tool that I've found very useful and, and yeah, might, might as well, uh, uh, Darn, I think it's so good the end. It's hard. It's so hard to distill. I was like, where do I land? Yeah, and that SET is just one tool that you can use to help make those discoveries and help think about yourself and, and other people in, in richer ways. Mm-hmm. I like that. So, okay. What, I, what I'm hearing is discoveries for yourself but also academia and research that reflects the lived realities of people. And that's what is so valuable and impactful about your work. And it's so hard to distill when it's your work to distill it down because you know it so well. Like it's, it, there's so much in it. So <laughs> I, I really, really appreciate uh, your time and your talking to me. Was there anything else you wanted to add? I thought there was like one more thought or. Yeah. One important part of SCT that we talk a lot about in the lab is the concept of hermeneutical injustice or the the lack like the social injustice of not being able to know things or make sense and I know that term from feminist philosophy of science and one of the reasons it stuck with me and I think other folks in the lab is that often people think well like where does power come in to academic work where does social justice come in for some people it seems obvious it does and for some people it seems obvious it doesn't and I think this idea of hermeneutical injustice is really valuable because it's actually unjust that people aren't able to make sense of themselves or their experiences. It's really unfair that knowledge is built for people who are already in majoritarian power situations and structures to to understand themselves and to see themselves and to be represented and to, to have full understandings of their humanity. And I think that knowledge is a really critical part of social justice. We need knowledge frameworks that people can see themselves in, both because it feels good and there's nothing wrong with that, but because we can't really have full social justice if some people are being denied understandings of their own gender and sexuality or being taught theories of gender and sexuality that are partial, excluding people, stigmatizing groups, othering groups, and so on. So 
for us in the lab, this like fancy concept of hermeneutical injustice or the injustice of knowledge is really key for the work we want to do with SCT to try to make the knowledge we have about sexuality and gender sex much more just and also much more empirical and much more meaningful to people's lives. Sarah, that was great. That was very poignant. And I think just so what we need in the world today, because there's so much noise and garbage that happens. So hearing something, hearing a real a dedication to justice and how it is unjust to not know ourselves and to have a deeper understanding of selves. That's just a, a beautiful way of, of putting it. Thank you so much, you two. I really, I so appreciate it. And yeah, I, I hope you like it. I'll, don't worry, I'll send it all to you. After. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having us on and for be. I know I saw you talk last year in Victoria and I really loved your talk. And so it was nice when you approached us because it's really fun to talk about this work as complex as it is. And, and this just reminds me how nice it is to talk about what we do and how with someone who's excited um, and how important like knowledge translation is. It takes a podcast about knowledge translation that we have done to remind me that. So thank you so much for that opportunity. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode, I'm talking to clinical social worker and psychotherapist Raheem Thoyer about what the heck does sex positive even mean and how do we work to be anti-oppressive? As always, if you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or send a voice message to me on Instagram at dr.leahtidy. I want to hear your questions and your voice on the podcast, so please do not hesitate to get in touch. And even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter, and if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual. <laughs>